Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Many of us have been exposed to this story. It is very much part of our Western culture, um, this whole uh, story of Noah. One thing I have never understood is why people decorate their children's nurseries with the ark and the rainbow. I have never quite understood uh, why people paint a baby's room with you know images from a story where God wipes out the entire world, including all of the living creatures in it. So um, we also, lots of people do the blessing of the animals on this Shabbat. I'm kind of like, really? Like, really? All right. So um, so we, we know this story. We know the story very well. And if you know me, you know that I read religiously on the triennial portion, because if we don't read on the triennial portion, we tend to focus on the same part of the story, which is really easy to do, um, which means we're not talking about the flood today. We are not discussing the flood narrative today. Um, so if you're really looking forward to that, sorry, go listen to last year. Uh, we talked last year about the flood and that whole thing of God becoming disappointed with the project. God becomes uh, disappointed in human Hamas. So we talked about the fact that Hamas means violence and cruelty and general badness. So the whole project devolves into Hamas. God regrets creating human beings uh, and then wipes out, right? Decides to, to scrap the project and start over. So this is the story of the starting over of, um, if we want to read it one way, God throwing a temper tantrum and taking the whole ball of clay and just smashing it and right starting over. Um, some folks want to be a little more thoughtful and a little more forgiving for God to say, you know, God is going to try this again. God realizes that God has failed and is going to give us another chance, going to start with the best that God could find of who was around at the time of great Hamas. And so God picks Noah and Noah's family um, to preserve every species on the planet um, by building a teva, building an ark, and um, and and taking care essentially of all of some examples of uh, plant and animal life, so that the world can start again uh, when the flood waters recede. As I mentioned briefly last time, if you're talking about beginnings, if you're talking about you know the world as it was in the ancient Near East, you must address the Great Flood. Just as if you're talking about beginnings, the creation of humanity, you have to, you have a tree, something about life or knowledge and something like that. And you have a serpent and you have the creatrix and all the other stories, the mother God, and you have um, the creation of human beings often out of dirt. Um, so there's some things you just have to have. So our story has them too, because you're, we come from the ancient Near East if you're in the ancient Near East, you have to address the great flood. So the differences in those stories, there, and there are differences in those stories in the ancient Near East, says a lot about the people writing those stories, right? So, so we look at the Israelite version of the great flood, and 
And, and a big part of the message of our flood story is actually at the end of the story. Everybody has the flood. That's not so remarkable. Um, but it's really the end of our flood story that's somewhat different. Um, and certainly the message is different. But everyone before the flood, so pre-Diluvian people, live a lot longer. That is one of the consequences of the flood, is that people live shorter lives after the flood. And that is almost universal across the literature of the ancient Near East. Um, and so uh, so you'll see, you know, people living to 900 and whatever, pre-Diluvian, um, but after that, they live shorter lives. So after that, w- what do we say when we want to wish someone a long and healthy life? We said, may you live ad mea esrim to 120, because that's how long Moshe lives. And that's a long time after the flood. So let us take a look at the text. We are starting at the end of the flood narrative. Chapter 8 of of uh, Breshit, of Genesis. And so we have God speaking, El Noach, to, to Noah, saying, Teva. So come out from the ark together with your wife, your sons, and your son's wives. So that's who survived, are these folks. So bring out everything that's living, that's with you. So chaya, like the beasts, um, the living things, the, the basar, the stuff of meat, of flesh, and of birds, and of um, the larger animals, and everything that creeps on the earth, and let them swarm on the earth. And this is, this is the second, if you will, the second Eden, the second uh, iteration of creation. It's, this is recreation. This is creation you know, the sequel. Uh, and so what has to happen just like the first time Prue or Vu, right? We, we get this, we get this um, divine injunction that they should be fruitful and multiply all, all the life on earth should be fruitful and multiply. So Noah comes out together with his sons, his wives and his son's wives Every animal and creeping thing and every bird, everything that stirs on the earth came out of the ark, um, probably like according to their species. What is the first thing Noach does when he gets off the ark? So he builds an altar to yud Vavhe, taking of every animal that is tahor, that is pure. Remember, we have two versions of the flood story. In one version, Two of every animal comes onto the ark. In the other version, and they are both in the Torah. If you don't believe me, you can go back and read it. Um, in the other version, seven pairs of animals that are tahor come onto the ark. Um, so, so he's taking, so this obviously uh, is referencing that idea of the animals that are tahor. It's from that flood narrative. And uh, so he builds an altar and he takes from every animal that is tahor. And he, he uh, offers up an ola on the altar. He offers up a holocaust on the altor. 
and and Yute Buffet smells the incredibly good smell of uh, things cooking on the grill. And God says to God's self, never again will I doom the earth because of Ha'adam, the earthling. Since the devising of, and this is, the Hebrew is complicated here. Um, the devising of man's mind are evil from his youth, nor will I ever again destroy every, every leaf, living being as I have done. So something about the lev ha'adam, the heart of the person, of human beings, ra, is ra, is evil, is bad. They've eaten, remember, from the tree of tov vira, the knowledge of tov and ra, of good and evil. They've eaten that fruit. They now know the difference. And God seems to have learned from the disaster that was before the flood. God seems to have learned that now there is within the human being from an early time, a sense of ra, of the capacity and the willingness and the desire to do ra to do evil. God seems to make a decision that God is going to put up with that. God is going to have to deal with that fact. So of course, a lot of folks want to answer. This is why we get Torah. This is exactly why we have Torah because God understands and learns that if God is going to deal with humanity, God is going to deal with a creature that from its, its youth understands and, and has a connection to Ra, to evil. But God decides God is not going to destroy the world as God has done. Now, the rabbis want to ask at this point, what exactly does that mean? Does that mean God's never going to destroy every living creature again? Could mean that, but it could mean I'm not going to do it in the Hebrew like I did this time, meaning I did it with water this time. So I promise not to do it with water ever again. It doesn't say anything about fire. It doesn't say anything about COVID-19. I might decide to do it with a pandemic. I might decide to do it with like blowing stuff up like I like God does with Sodom and Gomorrah, right? So there's lots of ways God could could destroy everything on earth, but God promises not to do it as I did this time. But people who are a little more hopeful want to read this as a universal agreement that God dis- God promises not to destroy every living thing on earth ever again. So long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So this seems to be a fairly universal statement that God is not going to disrupt the world to the point where there's no seasons, that now everything's going to happen as it's supposed to in terms of the natural world. And God blesses Noah. So again, we have the second iteration of creation. So everything on earth should prove or vu should be fruitful and multiply. And what did God do in the garden? God blessed them. And so now we're getting the second iteration, the second chance for humankind. What's God got to do? God's got to bless them. God blesses Noah and his children and says to them, so y'all should also prove or vu. You should um, be fruitful and multiply. 
And again, the rabbis point to the fact that this is all in the masculine. Noach Vanav, you could read it, Noach and his sons. I choose to read it children because, of course, the masculine, if it's plural, is inclusive of females. Um, but but the rabbis want to read this as it's only Noach and his sons, and therefore it is uh, incumbent upon only the men of humanity to procreate. It is not a commandment given to women. So if a woman is barren, a man is required to divorce her, according to rabbinic law, because he is commanded to be fruitful and multiply, which means he has to find a woman who can do that for him. Women are not commanded, so too bad for her. All right. The fear and the dread of you shall be on all the beasts of the earth. So they used to get along. Everybody used to get along in the garden, right? Not so anymore. Um, Everything in which the air is astir and upon all the fish of the sea, they are given into your hand. There's a lot of arguing throughout history about what this means. They are given into your hand, has been interpreted, particularly by Christian scholars to mean we are given dominion over all living things and over the planet. And therefore we get to do with it whatever we want. God said so right here. They are given into your hand. Of course, Jewish teaching has has been mixed, but certainly there is a large percentage of uh, the commentators who want to say what this means is that human beings are given responsibility for life on the planet and are given responsibility for the 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 health and the and the well being of the creatures of this planet. And uh, and that we are partners with God in that, and that we are supposed to take that responsibility very seriously. So every creature that lives is yours to eat, as with the green grasses, I give you all these. What does it mean with the green grasses? It means that's what we used to eat, was plant life. That's always been permitted. What was not permitted before was flesh. Now, God seems to understand that God is going to have to compromise. And maybe it was that smell on the altar. And God's like, I want me some more of that. The reach nichoach, that amazing smell, right? Um, so if, that, if I'm going to get that amazing smell, that means they need to offer sacrifices, which means they're going to eat meat. In any case, it seems to be a concession on God's part. Because God remembers learning here. God has learned some things about humanity. These are the results of what God has learned. And one of them is that God's going to compromise and let humans eat meat. Ah, but, verse 4, you will not eat, you may not eat, you shall not eat uh, food, uh, uh, not food, what am I trying to say? Uh, Meat with the lifeblood in it. So you can eat flesh. You may not consume flesh in order to consume the lifeblood, in order to consume the life force of the animal. That is prohibited. Ve'ach, and furthermore, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. I will require it of every beast of man too. I require a reckoning for human life for every man. Whoa, what did I do? Um, 
for that of his fellow man. So whether it's an animal or another human being that kills a human being from now on, capital punishment is involved, right? Uh, and that person shall be killed. Um, y'all need to be fruitful and to multiply. All right, here comes the really interesting part. And God said to Noah and his sons, I now establish my covenant with you and your offspring to come. And with every living thing that is with you, birds, cattle, and every wild beast as well that have come out of the ark, every living thing on earth. I will, I don't like maintain, but okay. I will maintain my covenant with you never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood. See, this is where the rabbis go. God is equivocating here, right? Never again by a flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. By Yomer Elohim, and God says, Zot ot habrit. So whenever we see ot, we've talked about this word before. Ot is always a good thing, a sign. This ot, a sign like this, is always a good thing. So what is this ot? It's ot habrit. It's the sign of the Brit, of this covenant that God is making, not only with Noah and his offspring, but with all living things. This is the sign that I set for the covenant between me and you and every living creature with you for all ages to come. I have set my bow in the clouds and it shall serve as a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Beni uvein haaretz, right? So this is the covenant between God and the planet. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and every living creature among all flesh so that the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures, all flesh that is on earth. That, God said to Noah, shall be the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Okay, so that is our text. Second year of, uh, okay. So yes, we are in the second year. Sorry if I said third, I did not mean it. I lied. Um, so anything in the chat I need to deal with? What about Abel sacrificing flocks? So um, so we can talk about that. I want to talk a little bit about this, um, this idea of the Brit, this idea of the covenant. And this idea of covenant is, uh, is a covenant with all of humanity. This covenant is still in place according to the rabbis. So God makes a breach with all humankind, with all living things. And it even said with the Irets, with the earth itself. So, so we as a people believe, and we've not abandoned this belief. I, I know we don't take these, these texts literally. We're not fundamentalists. I get that. But we do still as a people believe that the one God is in a covenantal relationship with all of humanity and all living things on the planet. There is not a Judaism that says God is only in covenant with the Jewish people. There is a specific covenant between the Jewish people and the divine, according to our tradition. But God makes the original covenant with Noah 
and Noah's offspring and every living thing and the planet. And that covenant has not been abrogated. That covenant is still in place. And so we talk about the Noahide laws, right? We talk about um, people following the, the seven kind of universal Noahide laws and that, that that is what people are supposed to do. And they are in permanent, permanent relationship with the divine, with our divine, with our God, with Yodhei Elohim, all these names that we get for God in these texts. That is the deity making the covenant with all of humanity. So I'm stressing that because often we are accused of, of saying and believing and teaching and preaching that God is only in covenant with the Jewish people. That is untrue. And this is our proof text that we have never taught that. We've taught that there is a special covenant with added additional responsibilities that is cut with the Jewish people at Sinai, but that, that God is still in, in relationship to all of humanity and to all living beings, to all living things. All right. Any questions so far? Premium subscription says Barry, right? So the Israelites have a premium subscription um, and uh, I'm not sure what that gets us exactly, except a lot of things we're supposed to do and a lot of things we can't do. That doesn't exactly add up to HBO and Showtime to me, but okay, whatever. Uh, um, and Amy, yeah. Does the text accommodate the notion of beyond this earth? I mean, life forms in other universes. So how, how would the scriptures accommodate that? I understand it, it doesn't. It does not accommodate that. It doesn't address it at all. So what the Midrash says is that God created many worlds before this one, but they all got smished. God creates, remember the Midrash, God creates only out of the Midah of Rachamim, of compassion, and that world is too soft and it collapses. That God creates only out of the Midah of, of Din, of justice, of strict justice, and that that can't be sustained either. That one's too hard. So it cracks. Um, and so, you know, so God realizes God has to have a balance between Dean and Rachamim, judge, strict judgment and, um, and compassion. So there's all those kinds of Midrashim, but they don't talk about life past this planet. That does, that is not part of the biblical uh, imagination. And if it is, they don't seem to care, right? They, they don't, if they do imagine there's life outside of this planet, then they don't seem to care about including it. But I find it hard to believe that would have been part of their consciousness, that there is anything past this planet. They didn't know about planets, right? They just knew about the world. There were at least two pieces of this that at least in terms of the clear meaning of the words were very disturbing to me. One obviously was capital punishment. Right. Which is like super clear here. No ifs, ands, or buts. And the other is the language seems to say that the world is ours to do with whatever we want without any particular limitation or anything of that sort. And I know there's a lot of other Jewish teachings about these things. I don't know if you want to go into that. But as you were reading through this, I'm going, ooh. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So some people have used it for that, right, to say, here it is. Here's proof that we can do whatever we want with the resources that, that are around us. 
But 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 fortunately, right, a lot of Jewish teaching and particularly now, obviously, now the teaching is this is the proof that we are responsible for what happens to the planet. Right. So and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that when I talk about the rainbow, because there's lots more to talk about. Believe it or not, there's lots more to talk about with the rainbow. Uh, one of my favorite teachings actually is this rainbow, this Keshet business. It's one of my favorite teachings and it's not because it's LGBTQ. I promise. Um, it's sort of like that, but, um, okay. So, um, so a couple of things, uh, coming up in the chat. So, um, I want to address Mehmet's, um, Mehmet's feelings about <laughs> poor Noah and God. Cause you know, you know, we get into this sometimes, don't we this year. And I love that he said this year, right. Cause my, you know, I'm always talking about how I feel about Moses this year, right. Cause every time we circle back to these texts, we're a different person. We've been through a different experience. You know, something's changed about who we are and what we're holding and what we have held over the last year and confronted over the last year. So Mehmet, tell me why, you're feeling so deeply for God and Noah this year. Well, with everything going on in the world, not only in the US, but, but everywhere, I who wouldn't want to build an ark and just go set forth and just uh, with everyone in KI here online and just set up a new world? I mean, I really feel for the story this year. And looking at it from uh, the writer's perspective, which is, I believe, is, is the people, I know this story is much older than the Israelite people. It's, it's, it exists in other cultures as well. But if you, I, I think it's a very Jewish story. When things go wrong morally, you know, ethically, socially, whatever it is, politically, we really want to build an ark, you know, something, a vessel, and just set up a new life somewhere. This is a very human story to me this year. I've never felt this way before. Interesting. What do you think is impacting how it's landing for you this year? Um, it, not only me, I think everyone in the room. We, I mean, with everything going on with the elections and the, the, the health situation, economically, we, we want a new life. Not only the old one, because the old one hasn't worked out. It, it led to this disaster. We need a new start. We need a clean sheet. So we want a Teva to get into and to be protected from all the chaos and all of the dysfunction and all of the terrible stuff, and then to start fresh. Um, but the other part of that that I heard you say is that you, you're you're relating to how hard that it must have been for Noah and his family, right? And all of us in quarantine can empathize. I think a little bit differently with Noah and his family this year, <laughs> right? That completely cut off from the rest of humanity, from their neighborhood, their friends, their city, their city council, you know, their their favorite actors on TV. Like they're they're, they're going to be dead. They're not going to have a season three, right? Like the, everything familiar, all all the faces that are familiar to them are gone, and all they have is each, each other. Excuse me, in this in this small right container that's floating in, in amidst the chaos. And so I think a lot of us can empathize with how lonely that must have been for, you know, Noah and his family this year uh, and how tight and constricting, right. That, that Teva is, it may be safe, but it's also really confining. 
So Barry uh, from Israel saying he loves the scientist God with her experiments. So, right. So that's exactly what this is. This is God, the scientist with God's experiments. The, the problem is we're the lab rats, right? So yeah, it's lovely that the scientist is like trying to figure it out and trying to manipulate things so that it's better than it was. The, the problem is we're in the lab <laughs> and gauges, right? So um, that's the part of the story that's a little distressing, right? For most of us and, and remains distressing for those of us who, right. Who know that our cosmetics are tested on creatures, animals that are right. That are feeling beings that are being tortured, you know, or fill in the blank, whatever else we're using them for. I eat meat. So, right. I, I actually participate in having animals killed. So, right. It's, it, it, it continues, right. That, that, that there is the suffering of the of creatures and, and our suffering as well. Um, and Melinda says, my thoughts on the popularity of the ark story for children's nurseries for a lot of religious families, the animals two by two story is the extent of sex and they're willing to give their kids. Then to some extent, that's true, right? That you need two. we're not going to talk about why, but you need two. you need a male and a female. And that, that's as far as we're going. Um, and then uh, Sheldon says the popularity of the art stories do locally to the Skirball Cultural Center's Noah's Art Galleries that teach the animals two by two at the beginning, separate from other pairs. By the end of the story, the animals were all mixed up and have learned to live with each other. Interesting. I'm not sure what that means. They were together in the Ark. They were together in Eden. So I'm not sure exactly how it changes in the Skirball's gallery like how it what changes that they are made that they are now somehow together differently dana says who and what would you put on the ark though just your tribe meaning if we want to talk about it as a symbol of starting over and getting out right so the question is who goes in the ark how do you define your tribe right how do you define your family how do you define who should be in the ark. And I think right now we are in a time of such polarization that there's lots of people we would say, not only do we not want them in the ark, but they should drown, right? Like they should, they should, they should die. They, they did a, they did a study asking people from both parties, how justified would violence be if your side lost the election? Something like 15% of both Democrats and Republicans said violence would be understandable if their side lost the election. Think about that. And that other, that, that, and they, and it was a much higher percentage that said, I can't remember how many, Judy just makes up percentages all the time. Whenever she says something, she just makes up percentages. So, and she sounds so like authoritarian, everybody believes her. So I'm going to say 37% (laughs) said, um, that the things would be much better if a bunch of the other party's members just were to die or to just get dead. So not even making that comment that I said earlier up. Um, okay. Um, we also have climate change is causing the, okay, we're going to go there. I promise. Um, 14 years, vegan radical over here says Barry, right? So if we're really going to live by our values, most of us would probably be vegan. Well, not vegan, because I don't think it tortures a chicken to have eggs. I'm sorry. Barry, you can argue with me, but like, I, you know, and if we didn't do industrial milking, I'm not sure that milking is so terrible for cows, but whatever. Okay. So I wouldn't be vegan, but I would definitely be vegetarian. I don't know about the rest of you, but if I really lived my values, I would be a vegetarian, right? Um, but 
I'm too much like God. I make a concession. Okay. So let's, let's look a little bit at some teachings around, um, around this idea of the Keshet, this idea of the rainbow. Ramban, one of our famous commentators, Ramban says, and my teachers in yeshiva used to say, Ramban, as to distinguish from Ramban, which is Maimonides. This is Nachmanides. Now, commentators have said concerning the meaning of this sign, which sign? The rainbow. Oh, Barry, I should, I should keep the Hebrew up there for you. Okay. Um, the meaning of this sign, that he has not made the rainbow with its feet bent upward, because it might have appeared that arrows were being shot from heaven, as in the verse, and, and now Nachmanides is going to quote Psalms, and he sent out his arrows and scattered them on the earth. All right. So one image is that God is shooting arrows at the earth. And that's a bad thing. That's God attacking, right? The earth. So if God had made the rainbow the other way, then it could look like a bow and arrow and that God is getting ready to attack. Instead, he made it the opposite of this with the feet bent downward in order to show that they are not shooting at the earth from the heavens. It is indeed the way of warriors to invert the instruments of war, which they hold in their hands when calling for peace from their opponents. Moreover, with the feet of the bow being turned downward towards the earth, it can be seen that the bow has no rope upon which to bend the arrows. And this one is going to be similar Rabbi Shlomo Riskin, the 12th century biblical commentary, uh, Ramban has a striking explanation for the symbol of the rainbow. Ancient cultures fought their wars with the bow and arrow, and the side which surrendered, pursuing peace instead of war, would express their will to do so by raising an inverted bow that the enemy could see. Similarly, God places an inverted bow in the heavens as a sign that he is no longer warring against humanity. Whatever the symbolism, it's clear that the rainbow is a half picture, lacking a second half to complete the circle of wholeness. God can pledge not to destroy humanity, but since God created humanity with freedom of choice, God cannot guarantee that humanity will not destroy itself. Oh, people. People, people, one of my favorite teachings ever, ever. The bow is placed in the sky because God says, I'm calling a truce. I am not going to do violence to y'all anymore. I promise. Here's my promise, the Keshet. I turn my bow upside down as a sign of peace. And that's, that's God's half of the promise. I promise I'm turning my bow. The question Riskin raises is, will we flip from down here? God's up there, right? In the heavens, God flips God's bow. The question is, will we flip our bow down here and say, we won't either. And if we do that, then we have a circle of color of light. We have a circle of every color in the rainbow present. The eternal question, this is what somebody was raising earlier. 
the eternal question is God has promised. And every time we see the Keshet, we see the promise that God will not destroy the, the world or the species. God makes a covenant with every living thing, with the planet itself. Are we willing to flip our bow and say we won't either? We've not been willing to do that so far, right? We want to say, uh, no, thank you. I like my SUV. And plastic is awfully convenient, like when you need water on the go. So, no. And really, you know, I need wood for so many things that I want a really nice wood. So deforestation, too bad, right? We are destroying the habitats of how many species? Knowingly, knowingly, we are destroying whole species, Right. You want to talk about who you feel for, Mehmet? I feel for those polar bears. Oh, my God. I can't even. I can't even, people. You see these mother polar bears are stranded right there. Their babies are stranded because there's no ice for them to cross from where they have their babies to where they need to live. The babies can't get there. It's a whole, it's just horrifying. It's just horrible. So like, I can't, and I don't know about y'all, but like, I've been watching a lot of CNN. I know, I know, Robin, I know I'm trying. I've gotten a lot better, but I'm still watching a lot. And they put all these commercials about the elephants, the elephants and these stranded orphaned baby elephants because their moms are being hunted um, for their tusks. Right. And so like, you just look, I mean, and these are just two images, right? But they, they bother me so badly. And yet, are we flipping our bow, right? As distressed as we often are and when we see and we are confronted with images of the world that we are destroying that is so beautiful and magical and these creatures that are so amazing. And Robert Gorin, the amazing diver who films such beautiful things that most of us can't see. And as we talked about that film, my uh, my uh, octopus teacher, right? Those, those environments that we are destroying with all of the garbage that goes now into the ocean. And we know this. And we're suffering as a result because we know what's happening. And guess what? <laughs> it amazes me. We still haven't flipped our bow. What's it going to take, right, for us to finally demand of our elected officials that there be a plan to move us to carbon neutral? What's it going to take? We're already sick. Like we already, 98% of women have Scotchgard in their breast milk, right? I don't use Scotchgard, you might say to yourself. Yeah, well, guess what? Your dentist does on their furniture. So does the pediatrician. So does the car wash place, right? So you, you're sitting on Scotchgard all the time. So the, the, the chemicals that were like jet fuel, I think about that. Like we're breathing jet fuel all the time. Like wh- how can that be good for us, right? The rates of cancer, the rates of horribleness, and, and we still haven't flipped our bow, what 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 is it going to take so this story for me and for many 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 of us as jews is really about um is really about responsibility and that god makes a promise with the keshet and the question is will humanity make the same promise in return will humanity flip its bow and say okay um right 
that we're, we're, we're not going to destroy the planet either. We make that commitment. We make a covenant in return. Barry says, our grandkids will look at us as we look at our racist grandparents, right? Right, exactly. Like, you know, we look at the horrible things that we charge the generations before us with ignoring. And, right, are we ready to have our grandkids look at us that way? That's, right, I, already my daughter, right, sees us being complicit in a way that's really disappointing to her and her peers. Um, all right. So how do I get back to sharing my screen? The covenants of Abraham and Sinai are covenants of faith, but the covenant of Noah says nothing about faith. The world had been almost destroyed by a flood. All mankind, all life with the exception of Noah's ark had shared the same fate. Humanity after the flood was like the Jewish people after the Shoah, the Holocaust. The covenant of Noah is not a covenant of faith, but a covenant of fate. This is uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. God says, never again will I destroy the world, but I cannot promise that you will never destroy the world because I've given you free will. All I can do is teach you how not to destroy the world. How? How? The covenant of Noah has three dimensions. First, he who sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For the, in the image of God did God create the human being. So the first element is the sanctity of human life. So Rabbi Sachs is saying this covenant with Noah is, is God's teaching about how if we live into this covenant and all the elements of the covenant, then this is how we, we, we cease from destroying the world. The first element is the sanctity of, and I would add the word, all human life. The sanctity of all human life. The second, read Genesis 9 carefully, and you will see that five times God insists that the covenant of Noah is not merely with humanity, but with all life on earth. So the second element is the integrity of the created world. The third lies in the symbol of the covenant, the rainbow, in which the white light of God is refracted into all the colors of the spectrum. The rainbow symbolizes what I have called the dignity of difference. The miracle at the heart of monotheism is that unity up there creates diversity down here. These three dimensions define the covenant of fate. Love, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, love, love, love. The dignity of all humankind. What if we really lived into that? What if we really cared? about what was happening to human beings in other parts of the world who do not have access to the things that they need to, to be dignified human beings, right? They, the minimum it requires, clean water, enough nourishing food, the opportunity for an education, the right not to have their homes destroyed and be put into child armies so that we can have minerals in our cell phones. So what, right? Like, what if we really took that seriously? I think he's right. The dignity of all human beings is the, that's where it starts. That's the minimum requirement for us not to destroy ourselves, right? And the planet. Second is the integrity of all life. <clears throat> what if we really took that seriously, that it's our responsibility to protect life and to help it flourish, 
And the third, that unity in the heavens results in diversity on the planet. That diversity is about the dignity of difference and that difference is good. And that having different species, different expressions of the one capital O is a good thing. Having different human opinions, believe it or not, is a good thing when we act responsibly in response to difference, right? When we appreciate difference and don't act all crazy um, out of that sense of being threatened by difference. Um, Interesting. Barry asks, is it possible to reconstruct capital punishment in the Bible as a message that some actions cause the untimely demise of one's spiritual path? I think it's even more than spiritual path. Like it causes the demise of one's path, period, right? That it the capital punishment is a response to the most heinous things that human beings can do to one another. And the, one of the only ways to address that and deal with that is, is right. Is to have the ultimate threat of then your existence will be cut off. It'll be stopped. Um, you don't have the right to exist if you perform certain acts that are so heinous and so dangerous to society that they have to be dealt with in uh, in the absolute harshest way. All right, let me go. I want to go to this other commentary. I have a few more commentaries I want to share with you. Is the rainbow anything else but the one pure, complete ray of light broken up into seven degrees of seven colors from the red rays nearest to the light to the violet, most distant from the light, losing itself into the darkness? And from the one to the other, are they not all rays of light and combined all together? Do they not form the one complete pure white ray? Could not this perhaps be meant to say the whole manifold variety of all living creatures from the most alive, meaning Adam, the red one, man, nearest to the godly, down to the lowest, humblest form of life in the humblest worm, every living soul that is in all flesh. God unites them all together in one common bond of peace. All fragments of one life, all refracted rays of the spirit of God, even the lowest, darkest, most distant one, still a son of the light. I just think that is beautiful. I know, I know it's kind of reiterating what we've said. I just think that is so gorgeous. Um, it's so beautiful. Um, then I want to go to Yitz Greenberg. I love Rabbi Yitz Greenberg. He's talking about the covenant as a mechanism. So we have several covenants. We know that. But he's talking about why covenant? Why does God pick covenant? In this case, with all of humanity, with all living things and with the earth, the covenant mechanism, he writes. And he loves the idea of covenant. Uh, Yitz does. The Rabbi Greenberg. The covenant mechanism protects against the two most widespread pathologies that flow from the human encounter with God. One is to neglect this world or even allow it to rot and instead pray for God to upgrade it miraculously. The other is to turn God is to turn to God and to ritual life in order to escape from this world with its challenges and burdens into the timeless, perfect heavenly realms. The covenant tells humans that they have a companion or partner or helper, but that they must do their share. They must fulfill their commitment by creating life and doing good in this mortal realm. 
There's a lot to unpack there. I'm not going to spend too much time with it because we'll have it up for you to look at yourself. But I, I love this idea from Rabbi Yitz Greenberg that the covenant is there to protect against the pathology that is natural to human beings, right? And that, that we have a partner in the divine, yes, but that we have to do our share and we fulfill our commitment according to this covenant by pru or vu, creating life and choosing to do good in this mortal realm. And if you'll remember, this is one of the points of the Eden story that we talked about last week. If God wanted perfection, God would have created a garden and left it like that. But God doesn't want perfection, it seems, says Rabbi Harold Kushner. God wants human goodness. The only way God can get that is by putting a tree in the garden that that they choose to eat from that has them understand good and evil. It's only once they eat from that tree that they understand that there is such a thing as good and such a thing as evil. And that's so that's what God wants is for us to choose to do good, not to just be created like the animals who can't do bad. That's the only explanation for putting that tree in the garden. And and Yitz Greenberg is taking that further to say that's what the covenant mechanism is. It, it it's about us taking our responsibility, fulfilling our commitment by creating life and doing good in this mortal realm. Our parsha illustrates the covenantal method of working for tikkun olam, the repairing of the world, out of deference to human needs and nature. Society takes small and compromised steps toward the ultimate goal. The ideal diet of the Torah is vegetarianism. No creature should live by taking the life of other creatures. In the Garden of Eden, all living animals, including humans, were vegetarian. However, after the flood, allowing for human hunting for food and human need for protein, permission is given to eat meat. The covenantal goal of a final peaceful world is upheld by restricting meat eating. All humans are prohibited. So he's saying not just Jews and and Kashrut, but with the covenant with Noah that we see here, all humans are prohibited from eating blood of the animal. Blood is seen as the carrier of life. The prohibition is a reminder that the ideal remains not to take another life. Not consuming blood is humanity's acknowledgement that it is violating the sanctity of life out of necessarily, out of a necessity and established culture. The prohibition goads people to try to ultimately reach the vegetarian ideal. So this is the, this is the philosophy of Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, who believes that, that covenant is, is God making concessions but that the covenant remains in place because we're supposed to be working towards the ideal. So by limiting what meat we can consume, in this case, blood for all of humanity, but with the Jewish people, our covenant with the divine, our Sinai covenant further limits what meat we can eat. And he believes um, that the the covenant is so that we can take what, what is, and move it towards the ideal, but God understands that we are not going to be at the uh, ideal anytime, anytime soon. So, so covenant is a way that we can live with the perfect, which is God. And if we want to say consciousness, the universe, like whatever language you want to use, that the divine is perfect. 
We are deeply flawed. But Rabbi Greenberg teaches that covenant is about the divine willing to be in relationship with we who are so deeply flawed because covenant allows for the possibility of us moving towards perfection rather than just give up, right? Which is what God did before the flood. God just gives up on, on the whole project. But, but covenant is God saying, okay, I learned and I'm willing I'm willing to be in relationship to these incredibly flawed beings that we're calling humans. And that if I'm going to be in relationship with them, the only way to do that is covenantal relationship with all life and all humanity. Then we're going to have another covenant that helps the Jewish people move towards its ideal of perfection. And there are many who argue that the original vision is that I've said it before, I'll say it again. And on that day, there will be one Yudhevavhei, and Yudhevavhei's name will be one. That the covenant was meant for all people. It would start with the Jewish people, but we were to be a light unto the nations. People would see how amazing this special covenantal relationship, this bigger covenantal relationship with more specifics and more terms, that that's a better way to live, a better way to get closer to the ideal and, uh, and that everybody would get that uh, someday. So this idea of covenant is very big for Rabbi Yitz Greenberg. I just want to close with one thing. What are the conditions for there to be a keshet? There has to be two things. There has to be rain and there has to be sunshine. There has to be the threat, the danger, the darkness, the, right, the, the, the threat of another flood. That has to be there. But what else has to be there? The sunshine that says it's not going to happen this time. I know it's scary. I know, I know it's happened. I know you've suffered. I know you're scared and I know why. And so that sun that says, look, the sun's here, the sun's shining. It's not going to be 40 days of deluge. The sun shines through the rain in the clouds and creates the Keshet, creates the rainbow. Because the only time we need the sign of the covenant is when? When we're afraid that it's all going to hell in a handbasket. It's only when it rains. It's only when we see the violence, the destruction, the, right, all the things that are flipping us out right now. That's when we need the Keshet. And the Keshet only comes when, when there's that threat, when there's that danger. And the hope, the promise, the, the, the source of, of the colors in the Keshet, when that comes shining through the danger and through the threats and through what we're suffering, there's the Keshet. There is revealed the diversity within white light, only refracted through raindrops. For me, that is probably one of the most beautiful parts of the teaching mm -hmm. about the Keshet, that there has to be rain and there has to be sun for there to be the sign of the covenant. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.